morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, well, I, I believe that uh, God has a word for us, uh, that he has a lot to say in the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, and uh, we don't have a lot of time, so let's just dive into it. It's going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 1, starting in 15, uh, verse 15. It says, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Dear God, Lord, I just pray that um, as we gather together, Lord, as your church, your body, who you're ahead of and preeminent over, Lord, that, that uh, you would just speak to your people, Lord. I pray that you just remove me, get me out of the way, and then speak through your word, God. I pray that your word would cut to the hearts of your people and that lives would be transformed, that we would recognize just a glimpse of who you really are, Lord. Please, Lord, it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So um, my name is Nick Allen. Uh, I'm the new youth pastor here. I've been here for a few months, but I haven't had the privilege of uh, meeting everybody. So I guess I'll um, just introduce myself a little bit. Um, I grew up in a small town in southern Ohio, near Cincinnati area, um, and I um, had a, a religious background to an extent, um, but for the majority of my life, I did not know Christ, and I, I did not recognize him for who he truly is. Um, I had people in my life who loved me and prayed for me, um, but I didn't recognize who he is and really give my life over to Christ uh, until my later teen years. Um, and one of the most instrumental things uh, that led me to the Lord in that way um, was youth group and a few people, godly people along the way who cared about me enough, but more than that, recognized Christ's worth and his value and how he deserved my worship enough to encourage me and pray for me. And a couple of people that come to mind would be um, one of my buddies, uh, Zeb Bourne, who I'm still um, just, he's so precious to me to this day. Um, he's actually in um, South Korea in the Army right now, uh, and we are still in contact. But he was a baseball teammate of mine. Uh, growing up, I idolized sports so much. And um, I, I had no care for any of the things of God. Um, but I considered myself to be saved. That was the vernacular. That was the terminology I was familiar with. Being saved. Because I made a profession of faith at a, at a very small age. And then I was baptized shortly after that. And I was told that I was saved because of that prayer that I prayed. And, but I had no love for Jesus. He was fire security in a sense for me. Um, but Zeb Bourne, uh, he, he invited me to youth group every day at practice during the summer on my summer baseball team. And finally, I went with him. And I ended up giving my life over to the Lord at youth camp that summer. Um, another person that comes to mind is my grandmother. Uh, she's no longer uh, uh, with us now. But she, um, she knew that Christ wasn't preeminent and first in my life. But she loved me, and more than that, she loved 
Jesus more. And she would drag me to church. I was actually, you know, there's some, some um, different living circumstances back and forth throughout my teen years. I, I ended up living with her for a certain amount of time. And she would take me, drag me to Evergreen Baptist Church, a small church with about 20 people in attendance in Peebles, Ohio, in Adams County. She'd, she'd drag me there on Wednesdays, uh, whether I wanted to go or not. And she would pray for me and pray for me and pray for me. And she never got to see me come to Christ, and, and she never got to see what God would do in me, but she didn't do it uh, not just for me, because she did do it for me, because she loved me, but first and foremost, because she loved God, and she recognized Jesus as preeminent and deserving of my worship. And that kind of leads us into what we're going to talk about today. Jesus, who is he, and, and what makes him worthy of our worship? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, before we get into this, my proposition that I give to you today is that you and I, all of us here today, do not recognize Jesus for all that he truly is. If you look in uh, verse 15, Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Now, first and foremost, don't stumble on that word firstborn. Um, you know, this, this is not saying that he is firstborn of creation as if Jesus is a created being. This uh, word actually in its context denotes uh, a hierarchy, a, a, a worthiness of inheritance of the Father. And we know that he's not firstborn of created as a created being like us, as if he was the first thing that was created. Because later on in the same verse it says, in the next verse it says, for by him all things were created. So the first step acknowledging who Jesus really is, recognizing him for who he truly is, is that Jesus is the creator God. Now this is very unpopular in our culture. A lot of people like to do things with Jesus. They like to, they like to uh, give some kind of religious respect to him in some ways, but will refuse to say that he's actually God or the only God. Uh, this concept that we see here in Colossians 1 is not foreign to the rest of the Bible. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, uh, it says that uh, Jesus is the radiance. He's the exact imprint um, of God. Uh, and verse um, 16 and 15 of Colossians 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, if that terminology sounds familiar to you, um, it should, uh, because we are all made in the image of God, right? We, we are all made, uh, though fallen and sinful, we are made with communicable attributes where we can love, where we can show mercy, or where we can uh, show judgment, and we have a recognition of right and wrong. Uh, we are made in God's image, right? But that's not what it says about Jesus here. It says that he is not made in the image of God, but he is the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it, it goes on to say that he is the radiance. Uh, the Greek word for radiance there, uh, it's the only time it's used in the entire Bible. And, and what it means is it, it, it's this concept of the source of energy that exudes from him being the source. So if we're made in the image of God, then we are a reflection of God's glory, meaning that God has a glory, 
and it's not ours, but we reflect it, though imperfectly, in our fallen nature. In the same way, the moon has no light of its own, but at night it reflects the light of the sun. In the same way, we reflect as being made in the image of God. We reflect the glory of God to the world, and that's why we are to be the light of the world, right? But Jesus is different. The scripture says he does not reflect, that he's not made in the image, but he is the radiation of the glory. So if, if we are a moon to God's glory coming from the sun, then Jesus is the sun. Everything about God is not reflected or seen better in Jesus. It is seen perfectly in the exact imprint in Jesus. It is his glory that we are reflecting. He's different. He's the creator God of the universe. This notion that Jesus is God is not a one-off in Scripture. It's not just here in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. For you that know your Bible, John chapter 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in chapter 1, verse 14, it would say that the Word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? And that everything was created through the Word. Right? That's Jesus. And Jesus even bears witness of his own deity that, that he is the exact imprint of God himself when uh, he's questioned by the Pharisees and he, uh, about Abraham and their lineage. And he says, Abraham, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. And the Pharisees are like, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old and you're telling me you've seen Abraham? And what he says is one of the most profound things in all of scripture. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, of course, that just doesn't make sense. That's Jesus putting himself outside of time, something that only God has. So if that's not explicit in itself that he's claiming some sort of supernatural deity above time, outside of what the Pharisees could understand, before and during and after Abraham's time, if that's not enough, the word I am was the name that God chose for himself when he revealed himself to Moses. So in the burning bush, when Moses said, okay, I'll go to the Egyptians and I'll do what you want me to do, but who am I going to say who sent me? He said, I am sent you. That it matters less about what you call me, what name you want to ascribe to me. What matters is who I am. And Jesus said, I am. Jesus is the creator God. We don't like to admit that in our culture, of course. Um, uh, in our uh, culture where truth is not relevant anymore and that everybody has a truth, and if everybody's truth is true, even though it contradicts each other, then that would mean there's no truth of, at all. But people still like to give lip service to Jesus at least. They'll say he was a good teacher, even if he, they don't claim he's God. But if Jesus claimed he's God then he's not a very good teacher, because he'd have to be delusional to think that, right? Or maybe he's not delusional, he's just straight up lying. Then he's not a good moral person either. Jesus is either God, he's either who he was, the creator of everything, or he's nothing. There's no gray, there's black and white, you're for him or you're against him. Now, what would it look like this morning in our church if we recognized comprehensively that Christ is the creator, God, of 
the cosmos. Now, most of us would be on board with that, right? I don't think there's any contention in the church about that. But let's explore some of the further implications of that as we read God's word. Continuing on, it says, In heaven and on earth, so all the things that Jesus created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Just a side note there, all things hold together. You can also translate that as in all of creation, everything find their being in Jesus, that in everything consists in him, and that apart from him nothing can, can, can be. Notice Jesus is not some deistic, distant, faraway God who, who maybe made all of creation, but then walked away and abandoned it to just run its course on its own. There are a lot of people who would claim that, um, that those would be deists, that, that Jesus is the, the great clockwinder who abandoned creation and he's really not involved in it anymore. No, instead we see that he's a meticulously sovereign God who is intimately involved in every intricate detail of the universe he made, just as Hebrews 1.3 said that we referred to earlier, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's no rogue molecule or atom in the whole universe that Jesus is unaware of, and not only aware of, but orchestrating that atom and molecule exactly where it needs to be in order for his will and purposes to be accomplished. Jesus is in control of everything. And he's the head of the body, the church. You see, if, if you look at verse um, um, 16 there, we see something really profound. Not only is Jesus a creator God, but why did he create everything? It's really small there, but if you can see it and look there, it says all things were created through him and for him. That everything in the sum of all creation is to serve his purposes. It is for Jesus. Jesus is a God-centered God. He is a self serving God after his own glory. That might not sound right at first, right? Because selfishness is a bad thing to us. Selfishness, we associate that with arrogant people. No one likes arrogant people, right? Um, but let's just look at, look at, you know, what Scripture says about God's purposes elsewhere in the Bible, you know. In Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, when talking about adoption, why Jesus uh, saved us, why we are now sons and daughters of the true God. It says he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did he save you if you're in Christ today? So that he would be praised as glorious. When speaking of the exodus from Egypt, why he saved the Israelites out of Egypt, he says, yet he saved them. In Psalms 106, it says, yet he saved them for his own name's sake. 
that he might make known his mighty power. So he saved the Israelites out of bondage and slavery so the entire rest of creation would look at that moment of salvation and say, wow, that God is powerful. And then if you look at Isaiah 43, 25, this is as explicit as it gets when it comes to our forgiveness and our redemption in Christ, our salvation. It says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own name's sake. And therefore I will not remember your sins. And then in Habakkuk 2.14, when talking about the sum of all God's purposes and all his creation, when he makes everything right again, when he redeems the world to himself and he judges every human being and those who are found in Christ will be with him and those who are found outside of him will endure punishment and wrath. The purpose for all that is he says, for then the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I looked at the ocean, it's covered by a lot of water. And that is what he describes as his purposes for how much glory he wants in his creation, that it is all about him. Now, this rubs us the wrong way initially. If this is your first concept about this kind of Jesus being a, a, a self-centered, a, a God-centered. Some of you are even uncomfortable as I'm saying those words right now. That just sounds wrong to you. That might rub you the wrong way. But why is this? Why is this? Because we always associate selfishness with sin, right? And it is sinful when it's applied to imperfect sinful men and women like you and me who do not deserve glory, who do not deserve praise. This is why we hate to see arrogance in people, and it's the same reason why Jesus hates to see arrogance in his people. This is why we are to be lowly, right? But we, not, we ought to not judge God by the standards of sinful men. If he really is perfect, if he really is all-deserving of all glory and power, then it would be wrong and sinful for him to not show his glory and seek it in his creation because he would be lying to his creation about whether he deserves it or not. And I ask you, if you would rather God not glorify himself, who would you rather have him glorify? You? No. Because you know you don't deserve it. But deep down we know that he does. In fact, though, God's primary pursuit for his own glory is the best news in the world for us. At first we think, well, I thought everything he did was because he loved me. That was the ultimate purpose of everything he did, because he loved me. The Bible is about me. No, it's about him. But that is the best news in the world for us. Because if his primary pursuit is for his own glory, everything Jesus did in creation is for himself then that means it benefits us for our good and his glory, like the scriptures say. That means that everything he does with his people in mind, he's using for his glory, is also for our joy. Let me explain. That means all of his commandments that he gives to us are not burdensome. 
are not to be hard to follow and to make our life worse. It means that all of his commandments that Jesus lays upon us are only for our own joy. They're only to make our lives more joyous in him. Because this, if you, if you were God, what would give you more glory? Giving rules to people who you called according to your eternal purpose that were bad for them, that made their lives worse, that robbed them from joy? And, of course, okay, out of fear for you and some sort of reverence, they might obey you. But how much glory does that give you? That, you're, you, that means you, you want what's worse for your people. That would not glorify God. But if he made every rule and commandment in Scripture for his own glorification for us, then that means that everything that we do when we deny ourselves the, the pleasures of this world, the temporal fake pseudo-satisfactions of sin for his obedience and glory that will ultimately be for his joy because it glorifies God more when we're satisfied than him rather than be begrudgingly obedient to his rules. It makes him look like a good God when I'm able to obey his word and say, this is much more pleasing to my soul than that sin that I was tempted with. God being for his own glory is the best news for us because in that way, it's the only way he can really truly love us. He loves us, and that's the pursuit of what he does, right? But in that love, his ultimate end is, I want Nick to love me. I want Trinity Baptist Church to love me because I'm, they recognize that I'm worth it. And the crown of his glory is his church that we see. The redeemed and chosen people who he gave his life for. The ultimate display of his redeeming love. And then also look there, I just want to say, this also means that all things work together for good, right? If he's after his own glory, and he, and he wants everything to praise him at the end of all time, then all things will work together for our good and his glory, even corrupt authorities and powers of this age. What did it say there? It said um, that... In he, he created everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. What does this mean, church? This means that our hope, future, and joy ultimately has nothing to do with who's sitting in the Oval Office, but absolutely everything to do with who's sitting on the throne of the cosmos. What would it look like in our church this morning if we recognized Jesus as the true source of our joy in his gloried, self-serving, all-loving purposes of his creation? What would it look like? And then finally, just moving on here. So Jesus is creator God. He's also created everything for himself, ultimately. But not only is he a creator God, a God-centered God, but he is a preeminent God. He is preeminent. 
We see in verse 18, it goes on to say, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the whole point of his creation in the sum of his glory, that he might be recognized as preeminent, first, top, nothing better, nothing more to gain, the ultimate end, more important than life itself, Jesus is the end goal of all his creation for himself. He is first. All of creation's purposes and his purpose behind it are to point to this vital point, that he is all that matters. Hallowed be thy name. It's not just recognizing God's name as holy. It is, and his name is holy. But it's a prayer, it's a petition to God that he would make his name recognized as holy among creation, just as it is in heaven on earth as well. Or it would say, God, you are holy. Your name is holy. No, it says, hallowed be thy name. Make your name holy to the people of your creation. And we see this same principle, the same distinction is being applied to Jesus here when he says that all of his creation and all his purposes are so that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be recognized as worth it. And he is, church. The goal of his creation is that he would be counted as holy, different than anything else completely better and deserving of all praise. If Christ is not all preeminent in our lives, then he is not at all present in our lives. If you claim Christ, but you fail to recognize him as the only true goal and the reward of your faith, then you're not worshiping Christ. Rather, you may just be worshiping the things that you think Christ will do and give to you. If he's not the end, if he's not the goal, if, if instead self-esteem is the goal, instead making yourself look religious and pious and getting glory from men for how much you serve in church or the things you do to check off your religious boxes, if that's the preeminent and Jesus is the function by which you use to do that, or maybe if Jesus just serves the end of the preeminent goal of your health and wealth and prosperity then Jesus is not who you're worshiping. You're worshiping what Jesus can do for you. And that's not Christianity at all. And what's tragic about that is what then happens if Christ is not the preeminent goal of your relationship with God, your relationship with Christianity, if he is not the goal, if he's not what you're searching for alone, then what happens when you don't prosper? What happens when your health fades? What happens when you're not wealthy? What happens when your self-esteem goes away? What happens when you lose everything? If Jesus wasn't the point, then you will have lost everything. And you'll do this exact same thing all the apostates throughout history will do. You will leave the faith because when the winds come and they beat on your house and your house is made on the sand of prosperity, if your house is built on the sand of a convenient life, if your house is built on the sand of people recognizing you as a good religious man or woman, 
then when those storms come, you'll fall by the wayside. But if it's built on the rock, that Jesus is all that matters, then you will stand there. And it's not because you deserve to be standing or that in your own strength, but it's because he is the strong foundation by which we build our lives because he's the only preeminent thing that can actually stand on the day of trouble and tribulations and storms. When everything is gone, he's still there because he's preeminent. He's first and he is all that matters. If you recognize that he's the goal, he's the top, he's the one deserving of all glory, he's the firstborn of redemption, that he resurrected from the dead to redeem us, if you recognize that he's the only thing that can give you true joy, not the things that he can bring alongside your Christianity, as if Jesus is just an accessory to your already pretty good life. But if you recognize that he is the end goal, then nothing in this world can steal your joy because nothing from this world gave you your joy to begin with. And I also propose that there's this seed of doubt and the lack of recognition of who Jesus really is as the preeminent creator in every single one of us. This is why we still fall. This is why we still doubt. This is why we're not where we want to be. And this is why revival tarries. Because Jesus' preeminence is not the first thing that comes to our minds when we think of our faith that we do not recognize truly who Christ is. You know, speaking of my grandmother, she, she used to drag me to church. She, she knew I was a, a sinful rebel, undeserving of God's grace. And she never knew if I'd actually come to Jesus. Or, but she, she, used to, she used to drag me to church. She used to pray for me. And she used to show me so much grace. I was so fallen. I was so, I was living so wickedly. And she always showed me so much grace. And she made it a point to whether he listens or not, I'm going to bring him. And he's going to hear the word of God at Evergreen Baptist Church in Peoples, Ohio. She made that effort. She made that effort. And yes, she did it out of love for me. But even more than that, she did it because she knew Christ was preeminent. And he deserved worship from her sinful teenage grandson who she couldn't keep under control. And, uh, you know, I, was, I got saved when I was 16 years old, and um, my grandmother, uh, who I was living with at the time, uh, she got diagnosed with brain cancer, and she, she passed away when I was 16. And she never got to see the seeds of faith that were implanted in me come to fruition when she used to drag me to church and pray for me and share with me the gospel. She never got to see it. She never got to see it. But she left behind a legacy in me that tells a three-word story that has nothing to do with me or her. And that story of my grandmother's legacy is Christ is preeminent. That he is all that matters. And I contend 
that if we would recognize more and more the preeminence of Jesus Christ, then this church would be full with a lot more grandkids. Be full with a lot more kids and coworkers. These pews would be full with a lot more friends who are afraid and ashamed to share the gospel with or invite to church. If we recognize the preeminence of Christ, revival might just happen in Marion, Ohio. And if you're listening to this today, whether online or in person, I don't know your heart. God only knows your heart. You know where you're at with God. Or, and maybe it's not that you just have a seed of doubt of Jesus' preeminence in your faith like we all do. Maybe you don't count Jesus as preeminent at all. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're not born again. Well, the pinnacle of his preeminence and how he shows it is that he was the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. That he came, humbled himself, and died for our sins, lived a perfect life. If he's God, then he's perfect and sinless, and, and we're not. And we deserve a punishment. We all know it. We can harden our hearts and try to say that we're a good person and that we're better than so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Anybody can do that. But we know deep down inside that we need a Savior. And Jesus is that for us. And he proved it by being the firstborn from the dead. Everybody else who died was just dead. And uh, even Lazarus, he died again, right? Jesus raised him from the dead, but he died again. Uh, Jesus resurrected the firstborn from the dead that in your hearts you would believe that and recognize him as therefore deserving of all praise and glory and honor and recognition of his preeminence so um, Lord as we close today I just pray for every person that heard this word today God that, that whether they're unsaved, and they, they don't have a relationship with you, and they don't recognize you as preeminent at all, Lord, that they, they don't believe in you, or they believe in some version of you that says that your purposes are to serve them alone and to make them happy, or, 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 or recognize as religious, or um, to make them happy, healthy, wealthy, Lord. If they have some distortion of what your true preeminence means, God, if they're not saved, Lord, that you would just... Make them realize, cut to their heart with the word and scripture that you were the firstborn from the dead, Lord. That you paid for their sins to give their lives to you, Lord. And then for us who, who do know you, Lord, and know something of your preeminence, but still do not recognize it as fully as we ought, Lord, me included, God, that you would just continually reveal yourself to us, Lord, that that you would change us from one degree of glory to another, God, as we look at you face to face, Lord, that we would recognize you as preeminent, that you're all that matters, Lord, that we would remove ourselves from our lives and be dead to ourselves, but be alive in you instead, God. Lord, don't let revival tarry any longer, God. Come to Marion, Ohio, Lord. Change our city, change our hearts. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Love you, church.